Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about Just 
welcome to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. We are recording on October 9th, 2013, and hopefully we will replay this if we get all our technology together on Fridays when our normal show is on. So if you are joining us on Friday, just know that this was recorded earlier, and we are not taking phone calls today on the phone line because we are actually gone. I'm gone. I'm actually on my way to Charlotte. <laughs> oh, and I'll get to visit our wonderful, wonderful other host, Melissa Pellu, so and her wonderful family, and her super nice husband, and her beautiful baby, and I'm so excited about that. And we are going to have a great, great weekend. But Thomas, you are with me now. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Just looking forward to going to Jefferson City this weekend, meeting with some phenomenal, awesome conservatives for the rally for common sense, looking to talk about the issues of the day. And, you know, first and foremost, though, scripture and prayer. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 says, I record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that you and your seed might live. Dear Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we thank you, Lord God, for another episode of Pro-Life Fridays here on the True Radio. Lord God, we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ for your provision that you're providing for the families of those who were lost in Afghanistan, Lord, For those who are affected by the government shutdown, Lord God, but first and even more specifically, Lord God, we thank you for providing for and meeting the needs of Devin, Melissa, and Ellie Palou. Father, we thank you that you are able and capable of performing miracles of healing in Devin's body that he might be able to receive the fullness of your grace, your healing, and your love. And now we ask that you would bless our guests today, bless our listeners, Lord God, and we pray that they would be able to take something away from this show today. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, this is kind of different, feels a little different for me, pre-recording, but there's a first time for everything, but let's get into it. Hey, there has been so much stuff going on, and it is not necessarily directly pro-life related, but it is indirectly related, and uh, we're going to talk about that. 
So what has been the big news going on continuing from last week through this week? It's the shutdown. It's the government shutdown. Oh, yeah, you knew I was going to talk about that. (laughs) And the selective shutdown continues. Now, if you're like me, you're almost at the point of being sick of hearing it. And Siri, hearing the word shut down and the point of being sick about hearing about it, Uh, except that something new happens every day that is supposedly shutdown related. Well, truth be told, the shutdown is a little farce. It really is. It's a little farce. I, I don't mean the shutdown itself is a farce, but a lot of what is being done in the name of shutting down the government, is a farce. Can you think of anything, Thomas? Well, let's see. They closed the memorial, the mall, you, the World War II Veterans Memorial, while they allowed hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants to hold a protest while you had Democratic members and some Republican members of the house out there parading and putting on the charade. Yeah, that's part of it. And it's definitely part of it. In fact, let me give you an example of what I saw kind of as as the biggest, well, the three biggest ones that I've seen. The mall and the uh, illegal thing I'll get to. It's part of it. Uh, You know the joke that was floating around about the government covering Mount Rushmore with a giant sheet? Right. Did you hear that one? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, we knew it was a joke the moment we heard it. Apparently, yep. though, Snopes, Snopes, Snopes.com thought it was such a thing that they published one of their debunks on it. <laughs> like, as if anybody actually took that seriously. Anyway, well, they've got work to do, don't they? Well, it is almost literally true. Twitchy reports that the Police in the vicinity of Mount Rushmore have put up cones on the road at various points where Mount Rushmore can be seen while driving. The cones are placed there so that people cannot pull over in their cars. They can't pull over in their cars to the side of the road and look at the monuments. You can't, so you may be 10 miles away, but you can see the mountain from various points. And police have put up cones so that you can't stop and look at it from miles away. You're not even in the park, maybe, or you're not in the visitor's area. Leticia, Leticia, let me interrupt you real quick. Let me interrupt you real quick and say, hey, Miss Lulu. Hi, guys. I'm here. Hey. How are you? It feels bright early. How you <laughs> it is. It feels weird. But we're, we've been roaring. Actually, I feel good. I feel like I feel less. Uh, I feel like I feel like you can do an afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not every day, but I can do today. Yeah, this uh, is good. I didn't know they would stop me from parking the cars, Letitia, so they couldn't see the, the mountain. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's not. It's if you look at Twitchy, Twitchy dot com has pe- people's Twitter feeds, and they're talking about driving by, not being able to stop, and there's pictures yeah. of all these cones on the road, saying the police have put these cones up so that nobody can drive and park by the side of the road and get out and look at the mountain, Mount Rushmore. And and this is seriously. The government is shut down. So, and this is how much sense it makes. The government is shut down. So as as much money as it takes to shut down what normally requires little to no money whatsoever to experience is being spent to keep people from even seeing what is visible to everyone. A mountain, Uh. for crying out loud. (laughs) They might as well fly a giant sheet over Mount Rushmore because that's what they're trying to do. But, you know, that's not all. That's not all. Yesterday, a story came out, and this is all over the place, that an international tourist group was detained by armed park rangers at Yellowstone National Park who um who, here let me let me just let me just read let me just read the story for you because that's how ridiculous it is let me see here um it was uh from the Eagle Tribune in Merrimack Valley the tourists let's see the the one woman who was interviewed for the story Zelina Court, Zelina I'm going to butcher this all day long, I'm sorry, was one of the thousands of people who found themselves in a national park as the federal government shut down went into effect on October 1st. For many hours, her tour group, which included senior citizen visitors from Japan, Australia, Canada, and the United States, were locked in a Yellowstone National Park hotel under armed guard. The tourists were treated harshly by armed park employees, she said, so much so that some of the foreign tourists with limited English skills thought they were under arrest. When finally allowed to leave, the bus was not allowed to halt at all along the 2.5-hour trip, 2.5 hours, not 2.5 miles, 2.5-hour trip out of the park, not even to stop at private bathrooms that were open along the route. Uh, let me skip down here. Rangers systematically sent visitors out of the park, though some groups that had hotel reservations, such as Valencourt, were allowed to stay for two days. Those two days started out on a sour note, she said. The bus stopped along the road when a large herd of bison passed nearby and seniors filed out to take photos. Almost immediately, an armed ranger, armed, ranger came by and ordered them to get back in the bus, saying they couldn't recreate. The tour guide, who had paid a $300 fee the day before to bring the group into the park, argued that the seniors weren't recreating, just taking photos. She responded and said, sir, you are recreating, and her tone became very aggressive, villain court said. The seniors filed quickly, quickly filed back on board, and the bus went to the Old Faithful Inn, the park's premier lodge located adjacent to the park's most famous site, Old Faithful Geyser. That was as close as they could get. Uh, barricades were erected around Old Faithful, 
and the seniors were locked inside the hotel where armed rangers stayed at the door. They were locked inside the hotel. First they wanted them to get out, then they can leave. Ah, okay. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so as the bus made the 2.5-hour journey out of Yellowstone, this is after the two days, this is when they could leave, the tour guide made arrangements to stop at a full-service bathroom at an in-park dude ranch he had done business with in the past. Though the bus had its own small bathroom, Villancourt said seniors were looking for a more comfortable place to stop. But no stop was made. Villancourt said the dude ranch had been warned that its license to operate would be revoked if it allowed the bus to stop. So the bus continued onto Livingston out a gate way out to the park. Um, the bus trip made headlines in Livingston where a local newspaper, Livingston Enterprise, interviewed the tour guide, Gordon Hodgson, who accused the park service of Gestapo tactics. Uh yeah. I'm going to I'm going to stop here and talk about this just just really quickly. Uh, I, at first I laughed because I thought you know when I got to the end of the story, honestly I thought this was a hoax. That is how absurd the story sounds. No recreating. No recreating. No recreating. Shame on you. Don't recreate. Don't take photos of passing wildlife or go to the bathroom. And and they have guns on them to make sure you do what they say. As absurd as it is, it was also very disconcerting. So I thought this was a hoax. And when I first read the story, I had to click to the original story and find out, no, this is not a hoax. <laughs> but I've got one more. In the name of shutdown, a jogger was fined $100 for jogging at Valley Forge National Historical Park. Since when does shutdown mean you can't go jogging in a public place? Oh, oh, and oh, well, I got one more, one more. Private businesses that happen to be situated on federal property have been ordered inaccessible, and people living in their private homes that happen to be located on federal property have been kicked to the curb until further notice. Uh, folks, a government shutdown does not mean that federally public properties are to be made inaccessible and inaccessible at the point of a gun. We are in a shutdown, which means federal employees aren't working their jobs. Well, certain employees aren't working their jobs. And buildings are closed, offices are closed, not open-air parks blockaded like a passage out of North Korea and people's lives and businesses taken down by armed personnel. That is not a shutdown. And meanwhile, the government is funding the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, opening the Washington Mall to a rally for illegal immigration, Thomas, and purchasing yeah. mechanical bulls. Mechanical bulls. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why that was not affected by the shutdown. What shutdown? <laughs> For the last few days, uh, you know, I'm holding my head going, I don't see the shutdown, but the shutdown is, is happening to, to innocent people everywhere. For the last few days, 
I've been searching for the right word to describe this. So not a shutdown, brouhaha. People have been saying that this is a temper tantrum for the president. Um, yes, I think that is partly the case. What, what other words have been used to describe what's been happening? Do you, can either of you tell me? Because I've, I've only found a few words. I mean, it's really hard. Okay. What was the question again? What? Uh, go ahead. People have said it is petty, spiteful, a tantrum, and yes, I'll, I'll agree that that's certainly true. Have you heard any other descriptive words to describe this shutdown? Illegal. Illegal, okay, illegal. Yeah, I've definitely heard the petty comment quite a bit. It's very petty, personal, um, you know, along those lines. It's just, yeah, childish. (laughs) Childish, childish, I've heard childish. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will agree that all of these terms kind of do describe the attitude with which the shutdown is being being executed, but I, you know, I, I still that doesn't still still doesn't hit the nail on the head for me. And and then I got it, I got it late at night when all the strokes of genius take place. <laughs> what is this word that I'm looking for? And it is caddy. It's caddy. I, I know you're you're probably underwhelmed, but bear with me. Bear with me, please. This is the kind of thing many wives do, and all wives want to do, when they discover their husbands cheating on them. This is about punishment and emotional so-called justice. It's emotional retribution, let me say that. Emotional retribution. It is a catty reaction to not getting your way. And there is no shadow of doubt in my mind that how this shutdown has been conducted was conceived in the mind of a woman. So as much as President Obama has to take responsibility for screwing the American public like this, holding tourists, holding tourists hostage was not his idea, at least not his alone. I don't believe that. I don't believe he alone is responsible for how this is being played out. This has all the scratch marks, all the nail marks, let me say, of a female. <laughs> and this is exactly what's being played out. Yeah. Uh, so, so, Thomas, you wanted to uh, make another remark about how the mall was open to the rally for illegal immigrants. I, I, the rally for illegal immigration. Yeah, yeah, I do want to comment on that. I find it rather interest, interesting that the well, the well-being in the interest of those who broke the law to get into this country was put up above those who fought so that individuals 
and I use those terms lightly, Nancy Pelosi, like you could be free, go at the full. Because that's what you did. You you stomped all over the graves of those men and those women who fought and died for this nation. Not only not it's not enough that you not it's not enough that you um that you campaign actively for the death of the unborn, but now you gotta take it to a higher level of arrogance by stomping on the graves of those who fought so that people who are so ungrateful like you could be free to act the way you act. Right, which is why I say no dude would have come up with this. No dude would allow uh, this to go to an emotional level. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, Burning your sister's sweater because you got in a fight with her. <laughs> it's like I don't really understand how this is not um, being. I mean, this is not being well received by the public at all. And thank God they're not. People are not taking this line down. Uh, if we don't get angry about something, we're 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 done. We are done. I mean, some people say we we've been we're being seared on the other side now instead of the first front side. We're being seared from the back. Uh, but this is this is not something I think is going to go away. This type of emotional retribution uh, is only going to continue until somebody call somebody reigns in the the, the level of power. You mentioned that it is illegal, and it probably is. I don't know. I don't see how this type of shutdown is necessarily is is legal at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. Yeah. Did you guys see how Charlie Rangel and the other um, several other Democratic Republic, or, uh, representatives were um, arrested during the immigration uh, march <laughs> or rally? <Yep>. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw that. I, I saw. Believe. I saw the pictures. <laughs> it just shows where the priorities are. You know, it, it's it's so interesting. You have people who are marching right now for immigration reform. Um, who want to be a part of this country um, while our rights are being treaded upon in the process um, and how our government is turning on us. And our own representatives are using this as a, a political stunt. And I just, I, I don't know, um, I wouldn't be marching for immigration reform right now. I wouldn't want to be a part of this mess, you know, um, where you can't right. even go and visit National Park because, um, of a petty dispute um, in the Capitol. Um, and it's just, it's all, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Every day, it's like you said, let's just, you, you look at it at the news every day and you think it can't get any worse. And then it is worse. <laughs> um, right. And, well, there's two sides. We're being seared on the other side now. Somebody's flipped us over and we're cooking on the other side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Well, you have to remember, Melissa, that they are catering to individuals, most of whom are uninformed. Yeah. A lot of them are terrorists, criminals, among other things. 
And so, you know, they they don't care. They they just trying to get over here because they think they're going to be able to exploit, take advantage of our system. Well, unfortunately, many of them must not have bothered to uh, look back on history because if you look at all the nations from Nazi Germany to Communist Russia and China, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, and Cambodia, they the the people that they killed first were the ones who were consuming most of the resources. Hello, I mean I don't right. understand why people don't get it. So. <laughs> I, uh, you know, let's let's stop. We have a caller on the line, and uh, he wants to make a statement. He did serve in the military, and Mike, you're on the Pro Life Radio radio program. Hey, Thomas, this is Mike. How you doing? Hey, Michael, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, I was just, you know, saying to, uh, I guess Melissa is the name. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> I was just asking her, have they shut down the airspace yet over Mount Rushmore? Are they going to shoot down planes because they're going over it? You know, I mean, really, it's getting ridiculous to where, you know, we as Americans that fought, like me, that, that was out on a ship protecting the waters of countries that are our allies and, and protecting the country I love so much. My grandparents came here from Italy to, to be part of a nation that was one nation under God, and we, we we served that because we loved it. And you know, as Melissa was saying about the, or you know, was talking about the uh, people uh, that got arrested. I was looking at the five, and Eric Bowling said, "Well, I jumped over the, the the barricades to go to the other side, and the cop grabbed them. Now, wouldn't that be nice if they if the Mexicans jumped over the barricades and they arrested them?" I mean, this is getting ridiculous, you know. I, I want to know why they aren't doing that, you know. I mean, it's it's just, you know, I'm dumbfounded by this, that, that, that they are letting this happen. And, yes, it does come from the top. It does come from the top. And this president does not like the American people, and he does not like our military because he hasn't protected them. He hasn't fought for the ones in, in Benghazi. Still nothing right. has happened. And... Everything is swept underneath the rug by the lamestream media that just doesn't bring out the news the way it should be and, and let the American people know. They're protecting him like he's the, he's their child, you know. And I want to know, you know, when this is going to stop, when the American people are going to finally rise up as one nation and, and march on Washington. And, and, I, and I'm hoping that is soon because I've, I've seen that there's going to be a, a million truckers going out there for three days to – to uh, shut down Washington, and I right. give him my blessing. Well, I can. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for your service. I sure hope people do not don't take this lying down and do stand up to the bullying tactics that we see coming from Washington. Um, and I want to thank you for your serving this country and for calling in. Well, I appreciate it, and like I said, I stand behind each and every one of you. We are Americans. We are one. Our, like I said, my grandparents came here. I didn't even get to speak Italian because my grandmother said we lived in America and we should know the American language. But does, that does uh-huh. not happen today. You know, but, right. uh, well, I hang thank on the you. line if you want to 
Thank you. Thank you. Hey, get on the line if you want to listen to the show. Um, I'm going to put you on, uh, turn your microphone off so you can listen to the show. We're going to be right back with uh, our first guest, Nat Lockett from Bound for Life and Justice House of Prayer. Our goal was three to five abortions from every girl between the ages of 13 and 18. The multitudes of people that have been hurt by abortion, it's just unfathomable. That abortion is really, to me, the ultimate exploitation of women. It is so shameful and secretive that many women don't tell anybody that they've had an abortion. They won't say anything for 20, 30, 40, 55 years. They're so traumatized. Silence. The U.S. Senate report states, Physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of the life of a human being, a being that is alive and is a member of the human species. There is an overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, biological, and scientific writings. Planned Parenthood is expanding now. They're building gigantic abortion clinics in anticipation of socialized medicine. There's a lot of money involved. We never would take personal checks. We always encourage the ladies to bring cash. Why is that? So, a lot, you don't have to report cash, friend. When you're fighting for your life, you need to know what you're fighting for. And if what you're fighting for is life, how do you destroy a life in an effort to fight that fight? I'm fighting so hard to save myself that I'll kill someone else to get that. I recognized I'd been involved in the death of 35,000 babies. And the truth has really come out about what abortion does to women, let alone the unborn baby, our dead babies. It will be over. And we are back. This is Pro Life Fridays Radio with Letitia Thomas and Melissa. If you have uh, a question to ask our host or our guest, the phone line is open. The number to call in is 760-542-3907. And our guest today, Matt Lockett from Justice House of Prayer, and also uh, the executive—I'm sorry—the executive director of Justice House of Prayer in uh, D.C. Matt, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me today. Hey, Matt. Thank you for being here. Welcome. It's great. It's great to be on with you guys. Great. I um, I'm really very excited to have you on our show. Um, you came to St. Louis, where I am, uh, just about a month and a half ago, maybe, to do a very important what you call silent siege um, at the federal courthouse in downtown St. Louis. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be organized and what is your purpose and your aim and, you know, kind of this is what you do um, as far as the ministry, Bound for Life, is concerned. Just give us a little overview of, you know, what you did here and how it relates to what you normally do. Yeah, well, Bound for Life, uh, as you said, it is a ministry. It is a, a Christian organization that started in 2004, specifically it was October 4th, 2004. So just this past Friday, we celebrated our nine-year anniversary of being in Washington, D.C. 
And uh, it was it was during that time that uh, after an extended time of prayer and fasting <clears throat> that that uh, this group of people felt led by the Lord to come to Washington D.C. and pray. And you know, you think, well, you know, there's all kinds of people in D.C. There's politicians and lobbyists galore, but you know, you wonder, is there anybody there actually going to pray? And so this group came to pray in, in 2004, and uh, the Lord had given them a, uh, a very peculiar strategy. And at the time, they, they kind of felt foolish doing it, but, you know, nine years later, I can look back and I can say that this was not foolish at all, but it was actually, I think, a great wisdom that was given. And what they did was they took a silent stand in front of the United States Supreme Court and they did that uh, by putting a piece of red tape over their mouth with the word life written on it. It's a really simple image, but, you you know, it's kind of like a picture says a thousand words. Um, mm-hmm. It started in 2004, and, and, you know, we thought it was going to be like a kind of like a short-term prayer strike kind of a thing. But then what, what grew out of it was we it, God made it clear to us that it wasn't to be like, come in, do this, and leave, but he wanted us to actually stay. So it's been nine years, and we are still in Washington, D.C., and what's come out of it is a thing called the Justice House of Prayer. And uh, we actually have a prayer room on Capitol Hill that we've been operating for the last nine years, and it's open to the public. And so we have people that uh, are on staff that live in D.C. and and are serving as missionaries as as a primary vocation. And then we also have people that uh, from the local community, that, and they come and they pray in the prayer room, but then also part of what we do is we are still praying in front of the Supreme Court. What's grown out of that is a movement that, you know, people have seen that. You know, it seems like so many people have seen the visual of a young person with a piece of red life tape on their mouth. It seems like it's almost like, you know, a universal symbol of the pro-life movement in a lot of ways. People saw it and said, you know what, I can't come to D.C., but I want to do that right here in my own town because there's an abortion center right down the street. And so primarily young people, but but really people of all ages, latched onto it and they've started taking prayer to the street. And it's been nine years and and we have uh, Bound for Life chapters that have started all over the country and in nine other nations. And so there's like a prayer movement for the ending of abortion that's been that's been really developing at a grassroots level, primarily made of young people. And so that's kind of how it got started, and that's what brought me to, to St. Louis when I was connecting with you and to that uh, Eighth Circuit Court where we prayed back in July. Right. Right, and that was a really special time uh, for me because I got to meet uh, Alan Parker and you <laughs> – and uh, several people from out of town, from from outside of St. Louis, who traveled all the way as far as Alaska, as away as far away as Alaska, to come to St. Louis to pray and to view. And what we did, we also got together uh, the day after to to view the courthouse, the Dred Scott, where the Dred Scott decision was made, the old courthouse in St. Louis. And it was it was just a a really great time to meet other people who were so um, committed to praying to end abortion uh, that they would come all the way from such great distances to 
to St. Louis. Now, tell us about the importance of St. Louis to Why did you come to St. Louis in particular? Why St. Louis? Well, St. Louis is a strategic place in the nation right now. That Eighth Circuit Court, it's home to the Eighth Circuit Court, uh, which the Eighth Circuit comprises multiple states throughout the Midwest, uh, stretching from uh, Minnesota all the way down to Oklahoma. And uh, there are a number of cases um, that have been working their way through the courts, primarily one, one in Arkansas uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, is really coming to the forefront, as well as another one in North Dakota. Both of those cases, as they're being challenged, are going to make their way to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Louis. And that's just one step below the Supreme Court here in D.C. where I pray. And so we, uh, you know, we see prayer as a thing to be invested, not just a reactionary measure. And, and what we see happening is God is moving in the nation. The sentiment of Americans is undeniably changing and shifting towards the, a, a pro-life mindset. It's documented in study after study. You know, you can look at Pew Research and Rasmussen polls. All these different studies are confirming the shift in recent years. And now, in 2013, we have the most amazing measures that are actually not just being proposed, but actually being passed into law in, in these states, primarily in the Midwest and southern states. And so, as they're working their way up through the courts, we really see prayer as something to be invested, because when I, when I read my Bible, I see that uh, I may never have an audience with a, a president, a politician, or a Supreme Court judge, but I know that in prayer, I can actually affect the events because I know God hears prayer and God moves through governmental leaders. That's throughout the Bible. And so um, that's part of what we were uh, investing in St. Louis, and it's been an ongoing thing. It didn't just happen one time, but it, this is an ongoing effort as we're looking to uh, uh, contend for the outcome of that case when it's heard by those judges. Uh, in, and 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 pray in advance to really set the stage for a favorable outcome. Very nice. I, I really appreciated uh, just learning a little bit more about Bound for Life and realizing that I did not know that there was a chapter, a local chapter here in St. Louis, and in the southern southern part of the the city, the county, that was a part of Bound for Life. And they were the ones that actually did all the logistics to put on this, what you call them silent sieges. And so tell us a little the bit. Silent siege. Right, um, silent siege. So tell us a little bit about that portion. What do you do when you decide to gather in front of, and how do you choose your place, uh, a, a location to pray and to put tape over your mouths? And people do kind of think that's kind of weird, so respond to that. Yeah, you know, uh, let me start with that. You know, uh, believe me, when we first did it nine years ago, we felt so foolish. We thought, you know, God, are you trying to humiliate us? Are you just wanting to make your people look bad? Because we feel really stupid right now standing in public and we're not saying anything. Couldn't I do more if I was raising my voice and shouting in the streets? And it just so happened that the day that this began was the opening day of the Supreme Court. And in 2004, that year... Uh, it was right before a presidential election where one of the primary points in the campaign was who was going to nominate Supreme Court judges. Uh, 
So every special interest group you can imagine that had a, a stake in uh, the pro-abortion industry, they were all gathered in front of the court that day for opening day. And mm-hmm. guess what they were doing? They had bullhorns. They had groups chanting and screaming. Everybody was shouting, and there was all of this noise, and no one was listening. And that was the day that our group showed up, and in, in weakness, they put on tape over their mouth, and they began to pray. And uh, one of the national leaders of, of a pro-abortion group snuck over to our side and asked one of our leaders, they said, what is this? We've never seen this before. And when we explained it to them, this look just kind of came over their face, and they said, I don't know if you realize it, but what you're doing is brilliant strategy. See, we actually get to do two things at the same time. We get to stand before the Lord and pray for our nation. We're praying for our governmental leaders. But at the same time, we have a single word that is shouting to the nation. You know, uh, the news has picked it up. It, it became an, It went from an oddity to a curiosity to a phenomenon in a very short period of time where we've had newspaper articles sent to us from the other side of the planet with pictures of our young people in life tape. It's been in every magazine, every news program that you can imagine. It's all over the news yesterday and today because we were out there praying for the opening day of session on Monday. And right. and so a single word and a single picture could shout a message of life louder than we ever could have from screaming and yelling. So that kind of takes the edge off of feeling foolish. We don't feel so foolish anymore because we've reached so many people. The way we choose where to go is, you know, we have people say, you know, well, I don't think there's any use in praying or going to a governmental place. I want to go to the abortion center where the stuff's actually happening. Or you might hear the reverse we actually believe that you need both. Uh, I want to save uh, the baby. I want to save, save a single baby. I want to see a 16-year-old girl's heart impacted that's going in to get an abortion. But at the same time, I want to save a million. You know, I, I know that the only way to do that is through uh, righteousness and justice being established as law of the land. Um, and I know that, that sentiment is changing in America. So it's it's good and it's right to contend for uh uh, governmental outcomes as well as individual outcomes. And so we pray in two places. We'll pray in front of courts uh, and we'll pray in front of abortion centers. And it kind of just depends on whichever is convenient for you. All right. Wow. Hey, Melissa, did you have a question? I think I lost one of my my talk show hosts. I'm sorry. Oh no. I'm here. Um yeah, um I was going I was wondering how many chapters do you all have now around the country? You know, it's always fluctuating because, you know, after 9 years, you know, we have people, you know, it it'll, it'll change, but we have about 120 chapters. We've had as many as 300 chapters in the past. There's about 120 chapters right now around the US and then we have a smaller number that are scattered in nine other countries. Wow. And um, how, how do people um, – oh, where do you see this movement going um, in the future? What, what do you see God doing with this with this movement? It's awesome at the beginning. We, I personally feel like um, we've gone through a few years of questioning, man, is anything happening? You know, I, I've talked with a, a number of pro-life leaders who are just feeling discouraged in recent years. And yet, there seems to be something happening right now. So 2011, 
had the highest number of pro-life laws passed in our nation's uh, history. 2012 came in second place right away uh, with not as many, but it was still the second highest. Uh, I was reading a study that said, you know, those two years were amazing, but something has changed in 2013. And it was saying that that, uh, pro-life state representatives and and, uh, leaders have been emboldened to do the most uh, uh, the bravest and the, and the boldest things ever before. And so 2013 is seeing laws passed that potentially even pose a challenge to Roe v. Wade itself and versus simply regulating what Roe v. Wade allows. Some of them have the potential to actually challenge Roe v. Wade. And so there is massive momentum wow. right now. And, you know, uh, government is always a lagging indicator, you know. And so here, you know, you pray, you sow prayer and service year after year after year, and if you just don't quit, I believe that there is a biblical promise for fruit of that. So now we're seeing that there is undeniable uh, change of heart in America, and so government is now following suit. And so, man, now's the time not to, not to quit. Now is the time to to keep pushing, and to if you're not involved, to get involved. I mean, you know, I kind of say, come one, come all. It's like I'd love for you to be involved with Bound for Life, but it doesn't really matter. Just get involved with any pro-life group that suits you because we need the full involvement of everyone. Oh, amen. Amen to that. Um, Did you have anything else to ask, Melissa? (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, I know that um, uh, the the majority of your, um, of those in your chapters, um, are they young people? I know that most of the balance of life um, people that I've seen at our local abortion mill are young and that's so encouraging because of, the um, energy and the excitement um, that they bring to the facilities, when, you know, whenever we're doing our sidewalk counseling and, and, you know, trying to communicate with the women. And so I was just excited to see that, um, so many young people understanding that this is their generation and the time to stand up uh, for life. Yeah, you know, it's uh... – it's shocking because if you look at trends with the millennial generation in so many social uh, uh, concern areas, they, they're very left-leaning, they have a very uh, liberal mindset, but there's one anomaly. And I think personally it's because of the amount of prayer that has been sown into this area. But uh, this young generation... Uh, they sort of like break the curve when it comes to abortion because they're actually more pro-life than the previous generation. And so uh, there, there's something countercultural that's happening with the millennial generation that isn't what everyone ex- – it's not what they expected. And so it, it's true. We do have uh, uh, primarily young people that are getting involved and, and they're participating in Bound for Life. It's not limited, though. We do have one of our chapter leaders in California is a, uh, I think, a 62-year-old blind grandmother who goes and, wow. and prays in front of a lo- local abortion center. So it's it's all ages, but but it's exciting to see what's happening with young people. So here in D.C., every January, we have the March for Lives. And we always go and we participate in that. But something shifted two or three years ago, and everybody's been talking about it in recent years, that that uh, I think it was the president of NARAL uh, came into town on that day, and, and, and she made a comment that she was shocked at how young the faces were because the, literally the city 
was filled with tens of thousands of teenagers and 20-somethings that had come to the city to make a statement for life. And so uh, these are exciting times. I, I'm, I'm fully invested in this. My family is invested in this. And when I look out at, at who's doing the, the stuff, uh, uh, it's thrilling because it is primarily young people. And, and I know that they're the ones that are going to get it done. You know, I mean, we have young people that are saying now, uh, my friends with uh, uh, Stand True Ministries, Brian Kemper, maybe you guys uh, recognize that name. They have a mm-hmm. T-shirt that says, I survived Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade will not survive me. And I love that. <laughs> that, is, that is, those are marching orders right there. And, uh, and I love That's what's happening. That's a brilliant shirt. It is. That that is a brilliant brilliant uh, brilliant yeah. statement. Um, now I have a real in the time we have left, I have a kind of a difficult question, and and I know that you know this is coming, um, and I just simply want you to answer kind of honestly um, your reaction to it. And one of the things that as as much as as the life tape was so useful, and I applaud, you know, the, I agree that when you had first. It was first used um, up uh, in D.C. in the opening day of the Supreme Court. It was spoke volumes without anybody having to say anything. Uh, it has since kind of been used, as, as many things will be used, by not by so so many more skeptical people uh, in a way to make pro-life people look bad. And, as, and so you know, you saying that this life tape is kind of now become a symbol for many people in the pro-life movement. It actually made its way into kind of a snarky uh, documentary called Jesus Camp about you know, these young Pentecostal children's camp, uh, and some of them actually participated in these prayer, these silent prayers with, uh, with the life tape on them. And I just wanted to know, you know, what was their, your reaction to that? Because I, as... For a while, there were some people who watched that documentary. I think in the last year and a half, it's kind of gone out of the mind of, of people. It's just kind of fallen out of attention. But I remember seeing it, and I wanted to know, you know, what is the reaction of be, that being used in a way to make you look bad? Yeah, I think it's pretty indicative of many things. I uh, I, uh, I I remember that film. I, I, I must confess I never saw it. Um, but uh, I was I was with the group in D.C. when those filmmakers came, and I uh, my understanding was that they came because uh, they they saw uh, Lou Engel had had uh, ministered um, in one of the meetings that the that the, the the film was about this other group I don't even remember who it was but Lou Engel who was our founder he he administered in one of those groups so they kind of ran on a bunny trail to come see you know uh, what we were doing in D.C. Uh, it was, in my opinion, it was guilt by association. Uh, once, I think, with what's happening right now uh, with young people, it, it poses such a tremendous threat to a pro-abortion sentiment and mindset in America that you kind of have to pull out all the stops and do whatever you can mm. to discredit and tear that down. Here's the reality: uh, uh, whatever idea they tried to plant about young children praying or potentially even what they tried to say about Lou Engel, it, uh, you know, it, it is snarky. Like you said, here's the reality. Um, children have the ability to pray uh, according to the same Holy Spirit that 
that you and I have, um, they don't get like a junior version. And so um, uh, I'm actually thrilled and actively engaged in getting children involved in prayer uh, for the nation. And I think that's uh, what was depicted. And, and that really freaks people out. It's like, wait a minute, you're getting my kids to actually believe that that's real. And I think I think anytime someone uh, crosses this invisible line that their faith is real and it informs their worldview and it, uh, it it helps craft how they work in the world, like that's really scary to people that are opposed to that. And uh, But of course, uh, if you're a Christian, if you're a person of faith, um, it's thrilling. It's actually our great privilege that we actually get to participate in shaping the world around us uh, through our prayers and through our active engagement in the culture. And uh, I don't see any reason to disqualify kids from doing that. I mean, I, I see children and teenagers actively involved in it, and it's probably one of the most exciting things I get to, you know, get to do. Oh, I agree. I agree when um, prayer needs to be a generational activity. I don't, and I don't mean activity as in it's like going to the park activity. I think from grandparents to parents to children to grandchildren uh, and beyond, prayer needs to be something that anchors a, a person to to God. And without that, you know, as much as we'd like to advance, you know, pro-life views and the pro-life mindset, it's never going to happen unless we are connected to the Father in Heaven. You know, even our children, even our children need to see that. Um, and so, right. I, you know, I'm all for... I am all for connecting what we do in, in making the case that our country should make abortion illegal to praying for that to happen and realizing that we have a God in heaven that wants us to pray for the right thing to align our hearts to his will and he would bless us with finally overturning, perhaps overturning Roe v. Wade, perhaps in another way, uh, to finally making abortion illegal. And so I, I want to applaud the efforts in D.C. that you're doing. Now, are you coordinating anything from D.C. that kind of reaches out to, over the country? As the, as, are, are you, the, like, the CEO? or yeah, I know it says executive director on your card, but what do you do? Yeah, well, I, uh, I, I am the executive director. Uh, we have a very small team, Um uh, but we, you know, our strength is in the local representation. So we have a, you know, we have a dedicated team here in D.C. and we actively coordinate uh, around the country with our chapter leaders. And uh, we do a lot of traveling and uh, hosting of special events to get the, the church and to get individuals involved in uh, prayer and in the pro-life movement. Uh, the one that we did there in St. Louis, we, we call it the Red Riders Tour because we're kind of like traveling around the country like circuit riders, you know, the old revival circuit riders. And so we're we're doing these events around the country. Our next one is in about three weeks. We're going to be down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, really excited about that one because amazing things have been happening in Texas um, uh, in terms of uh, pro-life laws and things. And so uh, we just, uh, you know, we, we just see a lot of momentum and there there's just, it's fun. It's exciting to see what's happening right now, and, and to see God's people getting involved. Amen. 
Well, let's see. Can I get somebody to check the lines? <laughs> One of my hosts. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for joining us um, and explaining just to our audience what Bound for Life, what Justice House of Prayer, uh, how you guys are involved in praying for the end to abortion here in America. And do you see yourself at any point partnering or working with other pro-life groups? I know there's there's so many, but everybody kind of um, is aware of other people. But I'm wondering if there is a way to foster a little more cooperation. Oh, I agree with that. You know, we, I, I personally, and I know all of our leaders, we are uh, so for um, unity and and a show of, of uh, uh, just a collective force, you know, uh, among the pro-life uh, groups. And so, you know, we, we try to take every opportunity that we can to partner with other groups, whether it's 40 Days for Life or, you know, uh, local things that are happening in, in state houses and, and what they're coordinating with uh, if they're reaching out to legislators, you know, things of that nature. So, you know, we try to partner with as many groups as possible and yet, you know, uh, hold true to what we feel like we're called to do, which is just to really hold a line in prayer. But we think everybody should pray, you know. <laughs> so we try to work Absolutely. with as many people as possible. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the program. I'm Hopefully I will be able to make it out to D.C. one of these years. Hopefully this cup coming next March for Life, not that it's an anniversary I want to celebrate, but I do want to be able to make a statement out in D.C., uh, at the next at the next March for Life, and hopefully I'll see you then, if not before. Oh, that would be great, and it was a blessing to be on the program with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you Thank so you, much. Matt. Take care. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, Leticia, we right. have our next guest on the line. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, you know what? I'm not I'm gonna push right through our break and not take it. <laughs> and just introduce uh this is an individual that I had met when she came to St. Louis for the the Bound for Life prayer siege. And I'm sorry if I get this terminology completely wrong, so forgive me. But I wanna bring uh this guest on. She is a post abortive mom that I talked to very briefly. And she has an incredible story. In fact, she wrote this up for, I believe, I forget which blog it was, but I wanted her to come on and share in person her story through the abortion process and healing afterward. Um, welcome to the show, Mina. This is Letitia, and you're on the line. Thank with, you. Uh, you're on the show with Melissa and Thomas, too. Thank you. Oh, hi, guys. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Hello. So first of all, tell us your family today. How many kids do you have? We um we have four kids. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> it's very busy around here. They're all under the age of eight. So there's definitely uh it's very lively around here. Right, right. And I got to meet your kids. They are darling, darling children. And and where did you come from? Because everybody came to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals Federal Courthouse in St. Louis, downtown St. Louis. And where did you travel here from? Um, we came from a suburb just outside of Chicago. Um, it's called Yorkville. Um, yeah, so we're kind of like among the cornfields. Um, that's where our area is. 
Okay. Well, yeah, like I said, I, we had Matt Lockett on just a few minutes ago. I said there were so many people from all over the place. I was I was surprised how many people made such a long journey to come to St. Louis because I'm like, oh, you know, St. Louis is in my backyard. It only mm-hmm. takes me 20 minutes to get from my house to downtown, but everybody mm-hmm. traveled uh, at least a couple of days from all the way from Alaska to St. Louis to, yeah. to pray. And I was blown away. I'm like, wow, this is – I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I, I didn't think it was as serious as it was. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, we have people coming from all over the place. Yeah, that was um, – yeah, I, 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 I didn't really know what to expect when we went there. It was kind of unexpected for us because it wasn't like a planned trip. We actually had something planned to do that weekend. We were planning going on a camping trip. But, of course, God had other plans for us, so – well, wonderful. It was so great to meet you and to meet your family and your husband. Tell us a little bit what brought you to this point. Just highlight the journey for us. Um, okay. You know, I mentioned on air that you were a post-abortive mom, so kind of go through that and tell us your story. Um, sure. Um, about eight years ago, um, we had uh, just had our son. I, I believe he was about uh, three, four months old at the time, and I found out I was pregnant again. Um, at the time, my husband and I were kind of having some issues in our marriage, and um, I had confided all this uh, with my mom. And um, as I shared with her that, you know, I was pregnant, she, um, you know, she had advised me that it was probably a good idea to get an abortion. And, you know, I was raised in a Christian house, so it was kind of um, – it took me back a little bit because I was shocked that she even suggested that um, just because of our upbringing. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, to her it was just um, something she felt that needed to be done because of um, the relationship I was currently in. So um, I was, there was a lot of pressure with that and just wanting to um, – we were living with my mom at the time and just wanting to make her happy. And um, I went ahead and went through with it and – um, I regretted it from the moment that I stepped foot in the door. It was just um, mm-hmm. not even, I didn't even want to be there. I was I was very scared. It was very cold uh, atmosphere, um, no eye contact or anything like that. So um, I, I did it. And um, about uh, the middle of August, um, well, I should say throughout the years since then, um, you know, I asked God to forgive me and, I just always carry that regret. I never wanted anybody to know about it because, um, again, I grew up in a Christian home and I'm supposed to be a Christian and, you know, it's supposed it's taboo to do something like that, you know. And um, so I never wanted to share that um, part of my life. And um, so, you know, throughout the years, um, that would just kind of bubble, to, you know, beneath the surface wanting to come out and I would just suppress it and, you know, I would just, you know, it was beginning to torment me all over again, like how terrible of a mother I am, how could I do this? And with every pregnancy that I had, it was um, even more guilt and shame and condemnation that I had because I felt, how can I let this child live, but I didn't let my other one. So mm-hmm. um, it was it was very hard for me um, throughout that time. And 
So Tuesday, I kind of felt like God was taking me through a process, and I was sharing with my husband uh, a couple months ago, I feel like God's doing something, I don't know what it is, but he's kind of leading me in a direction. And so, um, you know, uh, Tuesday uh, morning, um, I just felt like God was telling me, I want you to share your story with your best friend. And I just felt like, God, I can't do that. She's going to think terrible about me. You know, we've talked about this issue before, and I know how she feels. You know, she's very strong, pro-life, and um, so I'm, I didn't know how she was going to look at me, if we were going to be friends after that, and um, so I just kind of uh, pushed, pushed it out of my mind. Um, later that night, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I couldn't fall back asleep, and it was everything I feel like that I was suppressing throughout all the years was just flooding at that moment, and it was that night that God was calling me out of that shame and that condemnation. And I guess uh, the best visual for me was I just pictured myself like Jacob fighting or wrestling with the angel, just saying, um, you know, God, give me a new name. I don't want to be a woman of shame anymore. I don't want to be covered in, in this guilt anymore. And um, so I just, it was just a night of wrestling with God. And it was, it was, totally ordained by God, just the process that he took me through, the steps he took, and just um, having me journal, uh, write a letter to my daughter and telling her all the things that I had stolen from her, you know, her smile, her laugh, and the one thing that stood out to me that I took from her was her voice, and I wanted to um, do something to give her back her voice. I wanted to be a voice for her because whether she is alive or dead, I'm still her mother, and I still have mm-hmm. to stand for her. So um, and still, you know, make things right. And um, part of me didn't even want to reach out and accept God's um, uh, reach that he was um, extending to me. You know, I wanted to, I felt like I deserved to be tormented. I deserved to be uh, locked in that place and just, um, you know, of not wanting to accept that love and forgiveness. But I didn't just feel like I was, uh, God was calling that to me, but also my daughter. Um, So that night, I just, I named her Isabella. And I always loved that name. And I looked up what the name meant, and it meant God is my oath. And I knew that that was such a God thing right there because I'm like, oh, you know, yes, you know, this is my oath to God and to my daughter that I'm going to be a voice. I'm going to stand up. I'm not going to be stuck in this darkness anymore. And um, But I want to further the kingdom of God. And so, um, yeah, so that night, you know, uh, God just took me through that process. And, um you know, I I had never been able to go back to that place in my mind when I had stepped foot in that clinic. I didn't even want to think about it. It just brought back mm-hmm. so much raw emotions for me um, um, because I just kept replaying, I should have done this. I should have done this differently. I shouldn't. And um, so, you know, I felt like I was having me write everything down, you know, that had happened because it was it was in him having me face who I was, like holding up a mirror and, um, you know, being able to see my flaws and my brokenness. It was in that state of brokenness that I was going to um, experience his healing and that he was going to um, redeem me from that. So, Mm -hmm. um, 
So, yeah, it was a um, very powerful moment that night, and um, I was looking for a bracelet so I could remember my daughter by. And um, I, on the same website that they have the Red Life bracelets, I found um, the, um, ad, I guess, the advertisement for the Red Riders tour. And I knew this oh. was it, you know. And I was like, oh, I, you know, this is my opportunity to be a voice for my daughter. And we just, uh, I spoke with my husband the next day. And, um, you know, we had never spoken about the abortion um, since I had told him that I had done this um, behind his back. And um, so it was very nerve-wracking for me to bring it up because it was something we just never discussed in the, you know, uh, those eight years. So um, I just broke down on the phone and I just told him everything that God had been doing in me that night. And he was like, this is awesome. Let's let's go. We're going to do this as a family. You know, we're all going to stand together as a family. And so we had canceled our, any plans that we had that weekend. And, uh, yeah, we just made new plans to go ahead and go to St. Louis, Missouri. Wow. So you had not told your husband beforehand? I mean, how long had – I mean, did he not know at all? I – um, shortly after my abortion, because, um, you know, my he knew I was pregnant, and um, I didn't uh, tell him. It was probably a couple weeks afterwards, and he knew something wasn't right. As a matter of fact, he called me while I was on my way to uh, the clinic. Um, my mom was driving, and he called, and he's like, where are you at? Something doesn't feel right. And um, I I lied to him. I said I'm going to the doctor with my mom, and he's like, "Why? This doesn't make something doesn't feel right." And um, you know, I try to reassure him everything's fine. And so, you know, I see how God tried to intervene um, through my husband, and um, I just I just uh, you know went ahead and believed the lie of the enemy, and or wanted to believe it because I, I didn't fully believe it, but. I wanted to, and I, I guess more importantly for me was I had this um, this need to please my mom more and um, because to her, the way she saw me was more important, I guess, um, than what was right at that moment. So um, after um, I had the abortion, he kept asking me, and I would say no and, you know, just try and switch to a different subject and Finally, um, he's like, I already, I feel it. I know something's not right. And I, you know, I came out and I confessed it to him. And it was a very raw moment for us. Um, you know, we're both just weeping and crying. And, you know, I couldn't say sorry enough. But, um, <clears throat> you know, through my husband, I experienced you know, a taste of God's love because he could have called me any name in the book. He could have, you know, uh, left me or, you know, he had really any right to do anything, you know. And instead he came and he embraced me and he told me he loved me and that he forgave me. And, you know, so that was like a really powerful moment. I mean, you see like what kind of a man he was. So, um, yeah, that was uh that was a very raw moment for us. Wow, wow, I can't 
I can't imagine um, just, yeah, what could happen after that. Well, I, I'm so thankful that, you know, he, the grace of God, <clears throat> excuse me, the grace of God was on both of you to work through this um, in a, in a non-destructive way, you know, a non-relationship destructive way that it actually, you were able to, both of you were able to overcome this, this huge thing and, and heal from that. Now, now I have a question about your relationship with your mom. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the, what has that been like? I mean, has, has you said you had gotten an abortion mostly because, out of her insistence, you know, did she mm-hmm. get what she wanted out of the abortion, and is your relation? How is your relationship today? Um, right now, we're actually um, in the process of healing, and um, mm-hmm. me and my mom have, uh, you know, since then, you know, we always, uh, I, I, there was like a wedge between us um, ever since then. I think. When that happened, I just lost a lot of respect for her because, you know, I just had this idea. Now, don't get me wrong. I had the ultimate mm-hmm. say-so. You know, I I went through with it. So, you know, I definitely take, you know, if we're cutting it up in percentages, like 90% of it, you know. Um, but, you know, I do wish that my mom would have... Um, you know, uh, encouraged me to make the right decision and, um, you know, because there was constant pressure, like, you know, um, you need to hurry up and make a decision because every day that you wait, it's getting worse. You know, the baby's getting bigger, you know. You need to make a decision quick. And it was like that pressure of, you know, I didn't really feel like I had time to really think or digest or anything like that, you know, and all I was thinking about was trying to make my mom happy and, so there is definitely a lot of hurt that I carry from that, you know, towards her. and um, But never something we could discuss. You know, like after the abortion, it was very, the conversation was, are you hungry? you want to go get something to eat? And I just wanted right. to cry out and just say, Mom, I made the worst decision of my life. Like, you know, at that the moment that you need your parents the most, it was the moment that I didn't have it. You know, it was just, I felt like I had to put my stone face on and just, like, you know, pretend like it didn't affect me, like it didn't bother me. Um, So we never talked about it. After I came out and um, had uh, written the, uh, sent my blog into um, Bound for Life, um, I sent the piece to my mom. I didn't know how she was going to react. I didn't know she was going to be upset, feeling like, you know, I'm throwing her under the bus or, you know, I didn't know how she was going to take it. So I figured, okay, well, if I have her read my story, maybe it will soften it and kind of, you know, um, just kind of cushion the blow a little bit, give her time for it to settle before we talk. And she texted me right away. and She was like, I am so sorry. I'm so so sorry that I did this to you. I'm, I feel so much guilt and shame. And then she came out and shared with me about abortion she had had. And she oh, said, no. I, I believe the lies of the enemy, too. I believe that it wasn't a baby. I wanted to believe that. And she called um, 
renamed the baby Isabella. So she called her Isabella, you know, and that just made me feel like validated, you know, that the baby was validated. It was a life. She was a person, you know, just by her calling her her name, like, I'm so sorry I did this to is my daughter, my granddaughter, Isabella, and to you. And, you know, so it was it was so amazing how just taking a step out, I was so scared to say anything or to, you know, um, make that move out. But how God has totally blessed it. And he's um, healing, you know, my relationship with my mom and we're able to discuss it and for her to apologize. And I totally forgive her, you know. So I definitely say, you know, we're on that road to healing right now. Wow, that is that is so good to hear. Um, yes, we've had more than one guest on our show. So you're not alone. You are in great company of of women whose mothers are the ones that initiated the process of trying to get mm-hmm. an abortion. And their relationships have, you know, some of them still have very rocky relationships with their mothers still since mm-hmm. since their abortions. But, yes, I mean, this is a big this is a big thing. I mean, not to say yeah. this in a, in a very inarticulate way, but the relationship between a mother and her daughter that is really just raked over the coals over abortion is is pretty common. It is pretty common. I sad to say it is happening all over. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many times when I stood in front of the Planned Parenthood here in, in St. Louis, that most of the cars driving into the parking lot are a mother and a daughter. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll see men in the car a little, I mean, just probably just as frequently, um, maybe a little bit less. It'll be a man and a, and a woman. And sometimes a friend, you can tell they're friends. But so much more frequently, I think. Mm-hmm. I think I see it's a mother and her daughter. Yeah, and I believe I that. And it just, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to see, I mean, it breaks my heart to see anybody, but, you know, a mom who would take her daughter to see an abortionist. Um, yeah. It, I just, it makes makes me so sad because I think you know, this mother-daughter relationship is very special. It, it takes a lifetime to get it right, actually. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I have a daughter, and we just, we clash. We do. And it's not because, you know, we're different. It's because a lot of the times we are the same. Mm-hmm. And um, I would really, I mean, I just can't imagine just pouring the weight of an abortion between us. To, to separate mm-hmm. us. I mean, and I thank you, thank God that you're working on your relationship. Things are better. I'm so glad that your mom um, has come to terms with that because we have had guests whose mothers who have not come to terms with with their daughter's abortion yet, um, and that's still uh, a big issue between them. Um, but I, do you see? So here's my question: Do you see this? being something that happens a lot. You growing up in a Christian home, your mother having claiming to, you know, we're all pro-life until it happens to us and then we need to make a decision. Right. And then sometimes we don't this we decide to go against 
what we say we believe. Um, how mm-hmm. often do you see this happening, in, um, even among believers? Um, I I think it's uh, pretty common actually. Um, my aunt, she she's a Christian, and she had um, abortions prior. Um, and it's you know I there was um, I remember there was a service at our church when I was younger, and um, it was about abortion. And I just remember the altar being flooded with women at the altar. Um, who had had abortions, and um, I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I would have never guessed, you know, like that they would that they did that. So I think it's a lot more common than what's being spoken of. Um, I think wow. there's like we try to hide behind that veil of secrecy because, you know, again, we we grew up in a Christian household, or maybe we came to know, you know, God at a young age. And we're we're just like, oh, my goodness, we made such a huge mistake. You know, I can't say this, you know, with anybody. I mean, it's not something you want to brag about, you know. So, um, yeah, it definitely steals um, your power away. So, Wow. Wow. What, I know you and I are just speaking as people who attend church, and we're not in, you know, we're not in the position to, to do something, you know, leadership-wise. But what can Christians do to change the way abortion is talked about in church? I mean, it almost isn't talked about at all. Right. But there right. is this under, this, it's kind of this unspoken understanding that, no, we're not for abortion, but we're never going to talk about it. How do we change that dynamic so that we do wrestle with this and and bring people to terms so that we don't walk – so that in the future, you know, mothers don't walk their daughters into abortion centers and have abortions and then deal with the aftermath afterward. Right. Um, I think these days um, the voice of Planned Parenthood and, um, you know, echoes so much louder than the voices of the church. And exactly what you said, Mm -hmm. the church doesn't really talk about it. They don't um, discuss it. It's not an open forum. Um, I definitely think that we need to get our hands more dirty and getting more into um, our to letting the voice of the church resound louder than the voices of Planned Parenthood to let because um, there's it's such a hopeless situation that you feel like you're in. You know, you think, oh, you know, this is the world tells you, oh. Um, it's going to solve all of your problems. It's a quick fix. You need to do this. And they put it under the guise of women empowerment, your body, your right. And um, and the voice of the church, I feel like, needs to um, be more candid about it in, you know, the sermons or even um, for, uh, like, the teens for uh, youth groups. I definitely think it should be talked about. I mean, they're bold about passing out condoms and, um, you know, floating around Planned Parenthood uh, business cards to kids in high schools. We need to be doing the same thing. We need to go beyond the element, beyond our four walls and reach out to these teens and let them know that there there is another option, that life is it, – it's the choice that um, that will lead you to life as well. When we kill our child – in the womb, we're killing ourselves as well, a part of ourselves. And we need to, as the church, just be able to reach out beyond those four walls 
in, into our community and um, whether we start, um, you know, uh, joining with other organizations like Bound for Life or and being more vocal about it, I definitely think that's mm-hmm. um, a position that we need to take in, in the church. Jesus was vocal. He was vocal about his beliefs, and he didn't back down from it. And I think uh, the church today needs to have a confidence like that where we're going forth and we're not going back and we're not going to apologize for the stance that we take. I I totally agree with that. I do think believers need to be so much more bold within our own churches to take a stand and just and, and to challenge the silence. I mean, well, if the mm-hmm. silence is going to be going to be silenced, then um, you know we don't have to worry about somebody speaking back. I guess. <laughs> I guess exactly. Uh, so and also, take, women take over, it will encourage women to speak out silence. too. Yes. How um, so? Is there anything associated with Bound for Life other than just the prayer with the life tape, um, helping post-abortive women to speak out, or helping churches to speak out? I think this is a really major issue that we're we're talking about. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, are you? I'm sorry, I'm not clear on your question. Oh, sorry. I mean, is, is there? What can we do to encourage um, women to speak out? Um, is it through organizations like Bound for Life? How do they do? Can we encourage women to speak out within the group or out in the church at large? Or how should how do you think that women would respond best to kind of this prompting? So you tell your story and be healed and help others from committing an abortion and potentially going through the worst portion of your life ever. Right. Um, I definitely think that it's just an avenue to um, just to encourage uh, conversations to take place. Um, I, I definitely think it's something, like I said, needs to be spoken about in the pulpits and, and um, just getting involved in the prayer movements of um, of light, of being pro-life and that type of thing. Because, again, there's so many women that are, and I, I believe that women have such a powerful voice, more powerful than what we realize, um, mm. and that it's important for us to feel that empowerment. Like, it's okay to come out. It's okay to talk about it. And if the church isn't talking about it on Sunday mornings or aren't actively involved in, um, you know, trying to stop it if that's what their heart is, um, then it kind of encourages women to keep silent and men as well to just not say anything because is it going to offend somebody? Am I going to shake the boat? Should I even bring this up? So I think having more um, open conversations and dialogue about it in women's groups and, um, you know, on this on Sunday mornings um, will help coax women out to feel like, you know what, I can, I can feel comfortable sharing my story. I can feel comfortable to um, receive healing and to ask for someone to pray with me or pray for me or to encourage me. So, um, because I think that's a big thing, too, that I know I had was, how are people going to react? Are they going to think I'm a hypocrite? Are they going to talk bad about me behind my back? I mean, there was such, like, a fear there. But I think if the church right. lets their voice known that there is no condemnation and we don't judge, but we want to offer a place, a safe place for you to heal, I think that's what's important. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, I think I was I was very moved. I'm having trouble keeping it together for me for the air. <laughs> um, <laughs> and if I, I really, this is. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, we have our show the way it is, because this is the real story of real people who have gone through abortion, and it is not as advertised. It is not the life enhancement and things will be better after you get an abortion uh, lie. It isn't. And there's so much healing and so much heartache that women and their families have to go through afterwards and it is not just all about the woman it is about their families too and who you know abortion affects more than just that woman who happens to be pregnant um so yeah i really want to thank you again for coming on the program and sharing your story and just giving your your very important thoughts i think you above um anybody else who in this in in the world because you've gone through this have have uh needs to be heard i think you need to be heard and millions of women who have had abortions need to be heard um and not to be afraid to share share your thoughts and share your story so you know i thank god for you and stay you know stay part of the show and come back and and visit us again i say that to all our guests and i mean it Um, yeah so have a great day i appreciate that yeah thank you too all right, bye-bye. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is really the real heart and soul of what this show is about. Yes, we make a lot of arguments, logical arguments, evidence, and present everything to you in order to convince people that the choice for life really is a choice for living. It's not just a choice. And in the case of Taking the choice for life away from somebody else is not a right that we should have. And I'm talking more broadly than just abortion. I am talking about every issue that affects people's worth and intrinsic value in life, that we that we don't have the right to take that away. And that is what being pro-life really means. So I'm going to take a real quick break and be back in a minute uh, for the sh- end of the show. I've got... I've got some good stuff, so you're going to want to stay with me. If you want to call in, the phone lines are open, 760-542-3907. You are listening to Pro-Life Fridays Radio, and we're going to be right back. We had a whole plan that sold abortions, and it was called sex education. Break down their natural modesty, separate them from their parents and their values, and become the sex expert in their life so they turn to us. When we would give them a low-dose birth control pill they would get pregnant on or a defective condom. Our goal was three to five abortions from every girl between the ages of 13 and 18 multitudes of people that have been hurt by abortion. It's just unfathomable. That abortion is really, to me, the ultimate exploitation of women. It is so shameful and secretive that many women don't tell anybody that they've had an abortion. They won't say anything for 20, 30, 40, 55 years. They're so traumatized with silence.
U.S. Senate report states, physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of the life of a human being, a being that is alive and is a member of the human species. There is an overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, biological, and scientific writings. Planned Parenthood is expanding now. They're building gigantic abortion clinics in anticipation of socialized medicine. There's a lot of money involved. We never would take personal checks. We always encourage the ladies to bring cash. Why is that? So, a lot, you don't have to report cash, friend. When you're fighting for your life, you need to know what you're fighting for. And if what you're fighting for is life, how do you destroy a life in an effort to fight that fight? fighting so hard to save myself that I'll kill someone else to get that. I recognized I'd been involved in the death of 35,000 babies. And the truth has really come out about what abortion does to women, let alone the unborn baby, our dead babies. It will be over. If you have a question for me or for Thomas, who is lurking back there somewhere, uh, you could phone somewhere. And I wanted to conclude uh, our story, our our headline today that I grabbed off. I grabbed off the internet today that um, sex selective abortion is actually creeping into greater prominence in the Western world. And it's really on our doorstep. And people are going to see the rubber meet the road. Uh, in Australia, the story that I read, a doctor by the name of Mark Hobart is coming under fire from the Medical Board of Victoria for refusing to refer a couple, a couple that came to see him for an abortion. And because the reason why they wanted an abortion was they wanted to abort their baby girl. They really wanted a boy. So they were asking for a sex-selective abortion. Well, according to the Australian Herald Sun News, under Victorian law, this doctor was obliged to refer the patient to a doctor he knew would terminate the pregnancy. But Dr. Hobart doesn't know any doctor who would agree to abort a healthy baby for sex-selective purposes. The general response from my colleagues is disbelief and revulsion, he said. In any case, a referral is not necessary for an abortion. Hobart's patient independently procured the abortion a few days later. Hmm. Neither she nor her husband made any complaint. That is, they did not make any complaint against Dr. Hobart. So, 
in in light of that, the to the couple is not involved in what's coming down the pike for Dr. Hobart. The medical board itself is making an issue out of something that legally is no longer an issue. I don't know how any government can compel doctors to refer people to others who will do something completely ethical. Well, I know how. how I know how they're going to do that. I do not know how it is justified that they can do that. I mean, what if in the name of being oneself, being yourself, a doctor uh, – oh, hey, I don't even have to come up with a scenario. This is – I. This is a story that I've heard. This is many years ago uh, as part of uh, an ethics essay that I have written. It's an example. And, and a doctor um, of a man, a dentist, I mean, a man wanted a dentist to remove all of his teeth for no medically necessary purpose. Now, imagine if the law orders this dentist to refer the man to someone who would do that if he didn't want to do it himself because the doctor, no right-minded dentist, would do that to, to somebody just because they asked. That is not only unethical, it's ridiculous. Well, the man can find some other dentist who would do that, and you really, you can find anyone to do anything under the right circumstances in the world. So this man is not, who wanted his, all his teeth pulled out for no good reason, can find somebody who will do it. I mean, if he could not find somebody to do it in a dentist's office, he could probably find somebody to do it in a back alley, teeth extraction for him, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Where am I going with this? Yes, you can always procure an abortion that you desire, regardless of whether or not the doctor you see first refers you to them. So the doctor now is trying to challenge this law that compels all doctors to refer for abortion because he said it's, it's not only a, a, an affront to his conscience, it really goes against the principle of being a doctor, and that's really basically what it is. If you as a doctor, if you as a pro-life doctor, which who, who Dr. Hobart is, doesn't want to have anything to do with an abortion, then how does it make sense for the law to compel a doctor to participate in an abortion by referring somebody who wants one to an abortionist? And for such a terrible purpose, too. Not that it matters. Sex selection, and we've talked about this before on the show, is probably one of the most egregious, shocking reasons for abortion. It should shock the shoes and socks off all of us to find human beings so disposable that despite any other reason, just the fact that they are the wrong sex makes them worthy of the disposal, the disposal of abortion. And it is, it is so heinous we should all recoil, as as the doctor said, all his colleagues did. He, the disbelief and revulsion should be all of our reactions. But it's not. But it's not. Just this past weekend, I believe in the UK, uh, they had a a debate where there is a now famous pro-abortion woman who argued for 
she argued for sex-selective abortion against a a pro-life person who argued uh, against, hopefully, against abortion, period. But the thing is that this woman, I think her last name is Selder, and we're going to find the story on that and put that and feature that as part of this program in the future. I'm going to. She has been known to debate among other pro-abortionists, abortion supporters, the logic of sex-selective abortion. Because most of those in the pro-abortion camp do recoil at sex-selective abortion. And she's calling them out, saying, you are being completely inconsistent. When we say abortion is a right, it doesn't come with conditions, because that's what a right is, a fundamental right. Now, when, we, when the law puts exceptions to those rights, it does so for the safety of and good, you know, the, and the goodwill, the safety, public safety. For example, you have the right to free speech unless you're in a crowded theater. You can't yell fire. That is a condition to which your right, it's not that you don't have a right, but the right of public safety supersedes your right to yell fire because you're exercising your right uh, in that instance will cause harm to other people. Now, in the case of abortion, she's just applying this in the same way. There is no harm, she's saying, in any case for abortion. You can't make exceptions for sex selection. And she's absolutely correct. When the pro-abortion lobby argues for abortion, supporting abortion as a fundamental right of women, it makes zero sense to start putting exceptions on there based on the sex, especially based on the sex of the fetus in question, the child in question. So say a woman doesn't want to have a girl, as many women in India and China don't want to have a baby girl. They have a right to abort that baby girl simply because that baby is a girl. It is logically consistent with the pro-abortion argument. So this woman, as monstrous as she sounds for supporting sex selective abortion is completely consistent with the logic. She's completely consistent with the idea that abortion is a right. And it's about time that we all come to grips with that and not accept as, as abortion supporters, abortion supporters should accept that and say, Hey, I can't, I don't have an argument against that other than, Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. How can anybody believe that that's really something that anyone can do? Actually, ethicists believe that very well. The paid professional morality board, if you want to call it that. I would say the paid professional unethical and immoral immorality board because they advocate for things that are completely abhorrent. 
say that it's okay. People like Peter Singer. Abortion for any reason is acceptable for parents because they get to determine who lives and who dies. You know, who cares what the reason is? So it's sex selection. If you have four girls and you want a boy, abort the girl. If you have six girls and you want a boy, abort the girl. If you have one girl and you want a boy, abort the girl who's a fetus, who's a child in the womb. He has no problem with that. As pro-life people, we should push back and say this logic that is consistent, that pushes you to believe that sex-selective abortion is even something that ought to be considered by the law is completely morally abhorrent. You can't maintain it seriously. You can't maintain it consistently and say that people have a fundamental right to have an abortion because if you don't have a fundamental fundamental right to life, you don't have a le- of the right to do something with a life you don't have a right to. And so that's kind of where we're at with that. And believe me, you know, several years ago, I wrote about sex- what if sex of abortion came to the United States or the Western world. And back then, this was not long ago. This was maybe three, four, five years ago. Maybe. Maybe that long. And I said, what if it came to our shores? And we had to really consider this. Abortion would implode. I'm starting to think it might not, but it certainly makes people who support abortion. Uh, It takes the mask off, this smiley-faced image of abortion, that it is just for the health of the mother or it's just for there wasn't the right time or it wasn't this or wasn't that. But when we turn it to face sex-selective abortion, we really see this is about uh, people wanting certain things and killing to get them. And that's what this is. So I'm going to end the show. I don't have a stupidest thing ever, but I I promise, how about this? We're going to have one. I'm going to have two next week. So I want to thank everybody for joining us on the broadcast of Pro-Life Fridays Radio. If you're a Friday listener, hey, have a great weekend. We will catch you next Friday. And come back. Hey, Thomas, are you there? I am. I've been here the whole time. Unmuted. All right. I just, I just heard this. And it's like, ah, are you there? Yeah, I've been there the whole time. This this audio clunk. All right. So, hey, you know what? This worked out great for our broadcast recording today because we are all in different directions on Friday, having our great our guest on today who could only make it during the day. This was awesome. This is God thing. It all worked out. Praise Jesus. Yep. Yes, ma'am. I think it was a great show. So. All right. Well, you have a great weekend, and I'll, I know I'll have a great weekend because I get to go to an apologetics conference. Doesn't that sound the most nerdiest, awesome thing ever? <laughs> well, that's cool. You, in other words, <laughs> right. you're happy you get to go argue with people. I, I don't get to go argue with people. I get to I get to learn a lot. I do get to oh, learn a get lot. To, 
you get to go learn how to argue with the people. <laughs> Maybe my way, not formally, but I get to learn. I get to do uh, a lot of networking. I get to listen to people present their papers and their and their topics of interest. And you know what? You've never been to one of these. We ought to take you. So you know that apologetics is not about arguing with people. I think that's. I think we got. I think we got some education we need to to land on you. Uh, I'll just listen to you. <laughs> now just have have fun, have a good time. I'm I'm giving you a hard time. <laughs> no, no, I think you have a wrong idea of what apologetics is, but we're gonna fix that. Yep. But you have a good weekend. Well, you have a great time at the Rally for Common Sense this weekend. I wish I could be there, but I can't be in two places at once. Yeah, you could, but that would that would involve the unethical practice of human cloning, and that doesn't. Work. <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you next week.